As we look at our text this morning, John turns back to his theme of love. He has said that God is love. God is love. He said that again and again throughout the book, making this statement that those who love God, who say that they know God, also ought to have love because because God is love. That they should have the same type of character, the same type of nature that God has because his spirit is within us. If you look at verse 6 of chapter 4, John has finished saying, and this is kind of what we covered last week, we are from God. He's speaking of himself and the church that he's overseeing, his, his, uh, his readers. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And then he says this, by this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And he's, he's coming back to that idea that those who confess Christ have the Holy Spirit within them. No one can confess that Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit ruling and reigning in their lives, John tells us. Now, there's another thing that we uh, see later in the book of Galatians. Now, I'm, now I just second-guessed myself. In Paul's writings, will be broad. <laughs> uh, in Galatians, I'm saying Galatians. In the book of Galatians, where Paul indicates that those who walk in the Spirit have the fruit of the Spirit. They have the byproduct of the Spirit. And John tells us here this morning that those who have the Spirit within them have the Spirit of truth. They have the characteristics of this Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, who is God within the believer. Now, Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, because God is love. And so all who love God also must have that similar fruit. And so he returns to this exhortation this morning to look at that, and we're going to look at it in three parts, this idea that God is love and that God loves you. You. Specifically and uniquely, God loves you. He's, uh, and so we're going to look at it in three parts. If you want to follow along, we're going to look at it as an exhortation to love, an exhortation, an, ex- uh, an extravagant love, and then a perfected love. So those are the three that we're going to look at this morning. An exhortation to love, an, extra- an extravagant love, and a perfected love. First, an ex- exhortation to love. This is what he tells us in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. There is the exhortation. Let us love one another. But before he gives us the command, look at what he does. This is like, this is brilliant. Okay? This is, this is amazing. We pass over it quickly, but how he addresses them is important. He calls them beloved. What he means there when he says beloved, he's indicating that you, who I'm speaking to, beloved, you are loved by God. You yourselves are loved by God. What, what John is doing here is he's anchoring this exhortation in uh, this command in their status as people who are loved by God. So he says, you know what it feels like to be loved by God. He's giving them assurance He's saying, you guys are beloved. This isn't just, you know, a a, a sweet nickname for them. He's giving them a a theological foundation 
that they can spring from. Beloved, you who are loved by God, you who know what it it feels like to be loved by God, to experience that love, now, you who are loved by God, let us love one another. He gives us this foundation, this status, so that way we can't cop out and be like, well, I don't even know what that looks like. I don't, you know, he, I, have, I have no clue. I can't love one another. He's saying, look back to how you have been loved. And he'll go on to explain that to us. Now, he gives us the reason here why we ought to love. Here's why it's so important. He says, for love is from God. It originates from God. Love originates God. He is both the source of love and the supply of love, the way that we can love. It's not, it's, uh, he is the, the starting point by which we begin to love when we love one another. He goes on and he says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So here is the result of those who do love. Love that is demonstrated in the life of the believer, it is evidence that this person, you and I, when we show love, it's evidence that we've been born of God and that we know God because this type of love only comes from God. This isn't like the type of love that you see in movies from Hollywood. This isn't the type of love, you know, that that happens in, you know, like advice columns in the newspaper. You read, you know, like these these uh, romance novels. This isn't the type of love that he's getting at here. Because those, those types of love are interested in their happiness, their end, themselves. But the love of God is interested supremely and primarily in a sacrificial love, in how uh, an outsider can be loved. So when he tells us to love with the love that God loves us with, he's saying you're not going to be able to do it unless you know how God has loved you, unless you have this specific type of love. Not this Hollywood love. It's not romance novel love. This is the love of God, a purposeful desire to set love upon someone who doesn't necessarily have something very attractive about them or something useful, something that you can, oh, I'm going to love this person because they have something that I can use. Uh, uh, I can make use of their skills or their connections or their network or their talents. They have resources that I could use, so I'm going to, you know, buddy up to them. That's not what he's getting at here. He's saying God loves us with the love that he has set upon us because that is his character, his nature. He goes on in verse 8 and he says, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. What he tells us here is that the absence of love, when we do not have love in our hearts for one another, and he's speaking primarily here in this moment in the church family, within the walls of the church, those people that are a part of the body of Christ. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Of course, this extends outside of that. But he's saying, if you can't even get along within the family, if, you don't, if, you're, if you're treating people who are Christians without love, you're going to have a way harder time loving people who are on the outside. The absence of love, it's evidence that you do not know God. If you do not have this love within you, John tells us, it's because you don't know God. 
Because real knowledge of God, if you know God, if you know who he is, you will see that God's interaction with people is always expressed in love. And so if you know a God who always expresses in his interactions with people, who always demonstrates in his interactions with people love, and you say you know that God, but you don't live in a similar manner, it demonstrates that you do not know God. Real knowledge of God is always expressed in love for brothers and sisters in Christ, for fellow believers. It always ends in love. There's lots of good things that we can do. Even Paul goes on to say this about the spiritual gifts. Uh, you know, he, he says this, uh, he, he gives some of these things in 1 Corinthians 13. You know, he says we could prophesy. Uh, you know, we, we, could, we could do all sorts of things. We can give our bodies to be burned. But if we don't do it with love, it's worthless. It loses its value. There's, there's no merit to it. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Here he's telling us about God's specific nature. God is love, and it's revealed, God's nature is revealed in his saving action, in his saving work on behalf of mankind in Christ. God loves us not for the reasons that we, in our human love, uh, not, not for those same reasons, not for the same reasons that we come up with. We come up with the way that we are able to love people naturally, the way that the world is able to love people naturally, is if we can receive something, we can gain something from someone. If someone is worthy of our love, then we will decide, okay, well, you seem like you're going to have a good return on our investment. If we decide to love you, you're not going to waste it. You're not going to, uh, you know, you're not going to go behind my back and, and uh, talk about me. You're not going to stab me in the back. You're not going to betray me. And so I will decide that I'm going to love you and invest in you and spend time in you. That's how the world works. But God loves not because he finds people worthy of his love, but because it is his nature to love. His love for us doesn't depend upon what we are, but who he is. It's his character. Think about this. We assess who should be loved and who we're going to give our love to on the basis of their merit, on the basis of our discovery into who they are and if they are not going to betray us. But Jesus, who is God, knowing all things, came to earth knowing that humanity would reject him, knowing that one of his 12 disciples would betray him and send him to the cross, but yet decided, hey, Judas, come and follow me. Come and be with me. He knew what the end was going to be, but yet he said, I'm going to set my love upon this man, and I'm going to show him no less than I show the other disciples how I love. I'm going to ask him to come with me. I'm going to, to eat meals with him. I'm going to spend time with him, not because of 
who he is, but because of who Jesus is. There was nothing that was within Judas that would have been like, oh, this guy seems like a good guy. I mean, he, later we find out he's the guy who's always stealing from the money box. It's like, that's a real sweet reputation. And he's the guy who betrays Jesus. But Jesus picked him, and he said, I'm going to love him anyways. I'm going to go the distance with Judas because that's who Jesus is. That's the type of love that believers are to have. It's core to God's nature, and therefore it is core to our nature as believers. Some commentators wisely stated that birds fly, fish swim, Christians love. That is the description that should, rem- should remind the world of, of who we are and what we should be. Jesus remarked on this in John 13, verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Christians love. That is the command, the exhortation that John has given us, that Jesus has given us, that we also ought to love because as we are born anew into his family, we're born to have that nature as Christ has. Now, John has told us love is from God. It originates from God. And he's told us that God's nature is love. Now he goes on to explain how deep, how intense, how extravagant God's love is for us. Look at verse 9. He says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, among us. What he's saying there, John tells us, is that in this action, in the thing that I'm about to tell you, God has showed his love. He has made it visible. He has revealed himself, his nature, his character, the way that he loves you. It's not just that he loves you, but he's like, let me, let me tell you how deep this love is. Let me tell, tell you how amazing, how spectacular, how, how uh, extravagant this love is. This is how God's love was shown, how it was demonstrated. He he will go on to tell us. Paul remarks upon this in Romans 5, verse 6 through 8. He says, For while we were still weak, speaking of you and I, mankind, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps... For a good person, one would even dare to die. There might be somebody so brave that they might be willing to die for someone who might be a good person. But, verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, his enemies, Christ died for us. We weren't even good. We weren't even a righteous person, he tells us. When we were his mortal enemies, when we were spinning in his face, when we wanted to kill him, he died for us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. God didn't just say that he loves us. 
and keep it on the down low, right? Because that's, you know, that's like a, you know, that's like junior high boyfriend, girlfriend status. Like, oh yeah, don't let anybody know that like, you know, we're, we're acting like we're in a relationship. You know, that's like what, how it is. When you love somebody, it's like loud and proud. And that's what God has decided to do in Jesus. God shows his love publicly so we can see it. There's no confusion. It's not like, well, does he love me or does he not love me? It, it seems like he says he does. Maybe a little bit of confusion. But then when all these people come around, God hides his love so that way, you know, it's, he's not embarrassed. That's not how he works. He shows his love publicly so we can see it. We can appreciate his love and we can respond to his love. He puts it out there loud and proud. He wants us to know that he loves us. Later in, in chapter 4, verse 19 of 1 John, John will tell us that we see his love, we appreciate his love, and then we respond to his love. He says, we love him because he first loved us. It doesn't originate with us. It's that his declaration is so loud and attractive and amazing and extravagant that then we have to respond. Now, some people reject that love, but that love demonstrated in an extravagant fashion should cause us to respond in submission, should cause us to melt and be like, there's no way. We're not deserving of this love. There's nothing that we could have done to, to earn it. We were like your enemies. We were, we were the meanest of the mean to you, but yet you showed us love. What kind of love is that? It's, it's an amazing, extravagant love. He says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. The, the thing that he did here in the type of extravagance in his love is that he sent his only son, okay? His only son. What John means for us to glean from this, what he means for us to understand is that there is a sacrificial giving and that Jesus is unique. He, we, didn't, we didn't get like, you know, the, the, the gift from God. We didn't get the, the love from God that was like, oh, I guess I don't need that, so I'll give it away. You know, that's like how, that's how like little kids act. You know, we're like, oh, you know, I'll give you the broken crayons. I'll, I'll give you like, you know, the pieces that are, that are broken. Oh, you can have this car because the wheels have fallen off and I can't do anything. with. Like, God didn't treat us that way. He said, I'm going to give you my unique son, my one and only son, that there is no other like the best of the best. You're not getting second best. You're not getting my leftovers. You are getting my primary communication of love. I want you to feel the full force. He has sent his only son into the world. And so his love is shown to be extravagant through the sending of his son. Now, the purpose of his, the sending of his, his son was so that we might live through him. That's what he goes on to say. God's love was not only to show uh, 
through the sending of his son. It wasn't only demonstrated through the sending of his son, but through the mission of his son, our redemption, so that we might have life through him. Jesus says this in his high priestly prayer in John 17, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's the mission, to know and enjoy Jesus, knowing God. And we have life through knowing Jesus. We have life, and, and, and uh, the extravagance of God's love is not that he just sent Jesus here to teach us some good moral lessons, to, you know, to upgrade the earth and be like, yeah, everything can be a lot better here because Jesus is God. But he sent him specifically so that we might live, we might have life through him. John tells us that all life, all life, even eternal life, is found in Christ. And so the extravagance of God's love for you and for I is shown through the sending of his son. And now uh, that we might have life through him. And now he tells us how we have life through Jesus. Look at verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this is love, not that we have loved God. He starts off setting the tone for us. This is huge. This is important. In this is love, not that we have loved God. He sets the tone. Foundational to understanding love is understanding that it does not begin with us. Love is not defined on our terms, but on God's terms. And the real meaning of love, what love looks like, John tells us, is only found at the cross. He says, in this is love, not that we have loved God. You can't define it. You're not going to figure out what it is. But here's what it is, that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the extravagance of his love. He loved us. He decided to set his love on us, not because we were inherently lovely or lovable, but we become lovely because he has set his love upon us. We become attractive to the world. We become attractive because God has set his love upon us, and when we demonstrate that love, then, it, then we become lovely because we become like him. He has set his love upon us. His extravagance of God's love is that he sent his son, but he sent his son for our redemption. He breaks it down into how we ought to understand love. He, he loved us, and he demonstrated his love through his son. He describes this through a theological phrase that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let me break it down for you. We'll unpack propitiation in a real simple fashion. To propitiate, it's a, it's a uh, term that is found, one of many that is surrounding the work of Christ. There are several propitiation, expiation, justification that are all surrounding the work of Christ at the cross and, and our salvation, the process of this. But propitiation, to propitiate means to appease wrath, is simply what it means. 
to appease wrath. And propitiation here is to remove the wrath of God against sinners by the death of Jesus. Because the problem that the Bible tells us is that all of mankind is under the wrath of God because of sin. Romans 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what it means to sin, to fall short of God's glory. You are not holy. You have fallen short. And that's the problem. But John tells us, and Jesus tells us, that the solution is the good news of the gospel, that there is a way to have the wrath of God averted from you and from I, and that God himself has made this way through the propitiation of his Son. Here's what Jesus says, or or John says in uh, John 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. So believing and obedience together demonstrate that you know God, you place your trust in God, and then you obey him as a demonstration of your trust. And those who do not believe or obey are left in the same state. They are still under the wrath of God because they have not trusted in Jesus' atoning work at the cross. So either Jesus removes the wrath of God uh, upon sin because of his work at the cross, or we pay the price, the penalty, the punishment for our sin. Jesus has done this work. He has loved us with a love where God has sent him not only uh, as his one and only son, but to be the propitiation for our sin. And so through the process of propitiation through Christ's work upon the cross, we are restored into fellowship with God. We can know him and enjoy him. And so his love is shown to be extravagant through the death of his son for the atonement of sin. The great, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, But who among us would think of giving up his son to die for his enemy? For one who never did him a service, but treated him ungratefully, repulsed a thousand overtures of tenderness, and went on perversely hardening his neck. No man could do it. But yet, that is the love of God. Though we were people who treated him ungratefully, though he came again and again with his tender love, trying to show and to speak into our lives, rejected and hardened our hearts, but yet the love of God, only God could do that work. And he's done that work through his son. And so his love is extravagant in the sending of his son and the work of his son at the cross. Now, John goes on in verse 11 to tell us about how when we receive this love, it becomes uh, completed or perfected within the believer. Look at verse 11. John says, Beloved, 
If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So John tells us this so that his readers, so that you and I might have assurance that when we show and we act out in love, when we act out the love of God, that we have this love that originates from the source and supply of this love, God uh, himself, when we have this love, when we love as he loved, we show that we belong to him. But his, the second way that he says this is so that we have a test by which we can assess the claims of the secessionists and for John's original readers or those who claim to know God, who say that they know God but yet don't have love. Well, if you don't have love, if you don't have the love of God, then you do not know him. John wants us to see here that God's love for us must cause us to love one another. There's no indifference about it. You can't say that you love God and be like, well, I don't really have any of the other characteristics or fruit of the Spirit. I'm just kind of like doing my own thing, but yet I love God. You love learning about God. You love maybe the theological pursuit. You love gaining knowledge about God. You love the experience of church or the experience of God. But is God the ultimate prize and, and thing that you are seeking? Is he the end or is it the experience on the way? God uses the experience, but what are you chasing after? What are you looking for satisfaction in? Jesus is the end goal. At the end of the day, no matter what, no matter in, in any season, in joy, in pain, in, rich, in riches, in a state of destitution, you always have Jesus if he is your end goal. If you're alone in a hospital bed or you're surrounded at friends at a party, if Jesus is the end goal, you have the same thing. Whether you feel alone or whether you feel surrounded by friends, if Jesus is the end, then you're going to be satisfied. But if knowing God is filled with the experiences that surround the process of knowing God, if it surrounds going to a Bible college or seminary in the pursuit of, of theological education, if it comes at the, at the, uh, uh, with, the, with the process of, oh, when we gather on Sunday, like that's the real time when I know God. If that's what it is, when you come to a season where you do not have that, then you won't have a relationship with the Lord. You won't have the riches, the satisfaction, the foundation of God. You'll have some knowledge about him or you'll have some things that will make you dissatisfied at the place that you're at. But Jesus wants to be all to you. He wants to be all the world to you. More than anything that you could ever seek or want or desire, Jesus wants to fulfill you and satisfy you more than anything else could. Because only Jesus satisfies He wants us to know that when we have Christ, when we know God, we will have that love for one another. As people who have seen this extravagant love demonstrated for us at the cross, when we see that, it should cause us to love others. It should motivate us. You know, a couple weeks ago, there was this... Um, 
like, I think it was like 52 hours long at Starbucks in the drive-thru where cars were paying it forward for the car behind them. They saw that someone had paid for them. And they were like, you know what? I'm going to pay for the person behind me. It lasted something like 52 hours. Because when people got up there to pay for their drink, they found out that someone had loved them. Someone had said, well, I only, I only really ordered one drink and they ordered like four. But that was a really kind thing that they did. So I'm going to pay for, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to pay for the next car's four drinks, even though I ordered one. And it went on and on and on and on throughout the day. There's, uh, they responded to that love. How much more should we respond to the love of God who has shown us at the cross, who paid with his blood, with his life? How much more should we respond in that we love one another? So much more. We're not buying Starbucks for people. We're just loving people with the ability that God gives, with his love, not even with our own love. We love, remember, not because people are lovely, because let's be realistic, there's some people who are not lovely, some people who are irritating, even people within the body of Christ who are like, I don't really get it, I don't really know what their deal is. We don't have, like, same hobbies, same interests, same background. We have different, you know, it's messy within the family. But we love not because people are lovely, but because God's love, when we know his love, it has transformed us. It's compelled us to be like Christ and has made us, you and I, to be loving followers of Jesus. And so the love of God transforms us when we know that love We see that love, we observe that love, and now we have to let that love grow within us and try to demonstrate it. Now he goes on in verse 12 and he says, No one has ever seen God. That's kind of like a random statement in the middle of that, right? It's like love, love, love. No one's ever seen God. Thanks for that. (laughs) Thanks for that tip. You know, good theological observation. No one's ever seen God, he says. But then he goes, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. He makes this theological statement that no one has ever seen God as an observation, as a way of uh, combating the claims of the secessionists, of saying this is how you ought to live. We haven't seen God, but we've seen God's love revealed. In his son. In John's gospel, he writes in uh, chapter 1, verse 18 No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So we have knowledge of who God is and what God looks like through Jesus, knowing we know God through Jesus at the cross. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, The Father whom who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. Later in chapter 6, Jesus says, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So we see not 
the bodily form, the physical form of the Father, or hear the Father's voice, but we see that God is love. His character, his nature is love at the cross. And the greatest evidence of God's work, his presence in our lives, is when we have love, his love. Love provides a evidence in the life of those who claim to know God. So John says, no one has ever seen God. But what he's saying is, we can't know for sure that you're friends with God because you're not walking down the street with him and be like, oh yeah, God can be like, yeah, this guy's mine. He's hanging out with me. You can ask him. But what he's saying is, if we love one another, then it's true that you know him. God's love abides in us. It's within us. It belongs to us. Christians who love one another, they demonstrate that they know the invisible God, the unseen God, lives within them. He finishes with this. Not only does this love demonstrated, not only is it evidence that God, they know God, but that love is perfected, he says, in us. His love is perfected in us. When he says perfected there, he doesn't mean like we're going to do it perfect. The word that he uses there actually means mature and complete. 100%. It is growing. If we love one another, then the love of God is matured within us. It is completed within us because we are demonstrating God's character. We know him. His character is this. We show that we have that maturity, that we know him. The mature Christian, those who know God, will be marked by love. It's interesting that that is the mark. Because the world measures and assesses maturity. Where are you at? Should you get a promotion? Should, are you ready for this? They measure it by power, by influence, by your passion for it. Do you want to work at your job longer hours than ever? Do you come in on holidays even when we don't ask you to? Are you here until like four in the morning and then you, go, you sleep on your couch and you're here the next day at like six you know, when everyone rolls in? That's how they measure it. They measure your maturity through passion, through your knowledge. Do you know enough? Are, are you there? But John tells us, and Jesus tells us that the Christian is measured by God's love in our lives and how we show it to others. Love is the mark of the Christian. Are you mature? Let's see the love that you have shown. Paul tells us uh, when he writes to the Corinthians that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If we measure knowledge as a mark of maturity, it's like then we just have like these you know, we have like the Mexican standoff of knowledge where everyone's like, well, I'm going to out-Bible you, blah, 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 and we're all going at each other, you know, trying to outdo one another. But he says, outdo one another in love. Show love. Just go all out. You, you want to compete? Try to compete in showing the most love. That's never a losing battle. When he describes the fruit of the Spirit... Uh, there, and he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, and he lifts joy, peace, kindness, patience, gentleness, self-control. He, he lists these all things out. The last thing that he says there is that uh, 
Against these, there is no law. They don't need to be governed by law. Because there's nothing bad that's going to come out of them. Just let them loose on the street. Let love loose. Just boom, go. But then he says the works of the flesh are evident. And they have to be governed by the law because it's bad news. It's sin. So we want to love and be marked in maturity by our love. God is love. His Holy Spirit works the fruit of the Spirit of love within our hearts. When we trust in Him for salvation, we are born anew into His family. We take on His nature and His character. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, before Paul talks about how God has demonstrated His love towards us through Christ's work, he says, God's love has been poured, like, you know, a pitcher poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's God's love that we're looking to show here. You don't have to fake it. You don't need to come up with like, oh, let me try really hard. You don't need to, to imitate it. You have his authentic, genuine love poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit when you trust in Jesus for salvation. And so it's by loving with the love that God gives, by showing the love that God has empowered us with, his love, that we show that we know him, and his love is completed, it's perfected within us. And so it's no wonder that John tells us Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. He, he gives us his summary in his very first statement. It's like topic sentence is his first statement, or it's like his summary also. We also ought to love. He gives us that exhortation to love, but then we don't know how to love because it's like, well, what does that look like? He gives us the extravagance of God's love and saying, look at how crazy it is how God has loved us that has attracted us to God. It's his kindness that has brought us to repentance. And then he sets us loose to love others and saying that when you do that, it shows that you belong to him and his love is perfected. It's matured within you. We have to spring out of his love, uh, you know, kind of just marinating in what it looks like for God to love us. And we see that demonstrated through the cross. That's what he's calling us to he calls us to love, an exhortation to love, but we first got to go and we got to linger. We got to linger with him at the cross before we go out on mission and serve him and try to love others. You notice when, when, when Jesus picked his disciples, uh, he, he went around and he picked all these, these guys with different backgrounds, tax cheat, fishermen, you know, like, just like all this, like, the most random group of people, brought them all together and said, okay, you guys are going to follow me. And they don't even get to go out and do anything. They just are with Jesus. That's it. They just hang out with him, see how he loves people. And then after a certain period of time, he's like, all right, it seems like you guys have saw how I've loved people. So now, you know, here's a staff. You shouldn't take a cloak. No cloaks for you. No fish. If you go here, they don't want you, dust off your feet, move, you know. It, they don't get to go out right away because they don't even know how to do it. They don't know how to love. They don't know how to be his disciples. 
They need to first go and be with Jesus and spend time with him and learn. What does it look like to love? So we need to go and linger and marinate with God and remember, how has he loved us? And then that should send us from that point, knowing how he has loved us, into mission. Now let us go love one another and let's go love the world as he has loved us, with that everlasting love. So let's pray and we'll respond together to that love. Lord, we're thankful for your faithfulness to love us at the cross. Lord, we're thankful that your love, it covers all of our sin. Lord, and that you sent your son to pay the price for our sin. And not just our sin, but the sin of the whole world. And so, Lord, we want to we see how wonderful and loving and amazing Jesus is. And we want to respond together now, Lord, in worship and say thank you and, and pour out our hearts and tell you that we loved you and that we want you to have charge over our life. We want to bend our knee and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And so, Lord, we pray that you would show us, Lord, Remind us of that extravagant love with which you have loved us so that we just don't sit there, you know, sitting on our hands wondering what we should do or how we should act. But we want to respond to that great love just as people have lined up for Starbucks and got inspired, Lord, by the person in front of them who paid for them. Lord, we want to we wanna similarly, we want to be reminded that you have paid for us and now we want to love others. And we want to get excited and celebrate and thank you and, and give you our lives. It's your Holy Spirit that does that work within our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, would transform us as we set our eyes upon Jesus once again this morning, as we look to the cross and worship you, we pray that you would have your way in us, Lord. We love you. Amen.